Chang and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Now, this is one of our first episodes that we shot in front of a studio audience, and I can honestly tell you that John Chambers personally introduced himself to every single person in the audience, shook hands with them, and asked them what they wanted to hear. Uh, he is without a doubt one of the most outgoing CEOs I've ever met, and he's also one of the longest-running tech CEOs in history. He hails from the underdog state of West Virginia, got his start at IBM before he landed a job at Cisco in the early 90s. He became CEO in 1995, which was just five years before the tech industry went bust. Chambers led Cisco, a bellwether in the tech industry, out of the devastation and ultimately grew Cisco's revenue from $70 million to $47 billion. He stepped down in 2015 and is now focusing on finding the next Cisco, investing in a raft of startups that he believes are the secret to keeping America great. Take a listen to my conversation with John Chambers, former CEO and chair of Cisco, now CEO of JC2 Ventures. John, thank you so much for joining us. Emily, it's a pleasure to be on your show once again. I want to start in the middle okay. when you joined Cisco. Because as I understand it, your first day on the job, they put you in a telephone closet. And you weren't a nobody like you'd had a 15-year career. Mm -hmm. But is that true? It is true. I came out from the East Coast, and I had an East Coast mentality, a prior IBMer, and a company called Wang Laboratories with 32,000 people. And I came out to Silicon Valley, and I've always heard it was a little bit unusual, but the first day our company was growing so rapidly, and I joined when there were 400 people, uh, they had no space, and so they put me in a, a telephone switching uh, closet. I immediately thought about, should I give my wife a call and said, Elaine, <laughs> I'm coming back to Boston. Uh, and then there was a problem uh, uh, with a customer, and I immediately jumped into it and went downstairs to find our customer support team, and there was none. So I knew what the problem was, and I was off to the races. I knew the difference I could make and uh, uh, love the valley, love how fast we move, but it was a cultural adjustment. So I want to talk about where that guy came from, the guy who was willing to sit in the telephone closet, mm -hmm. and you were raised in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your upbringing. I was raised uh, uh, by two doctors and uh, they were in med school at the time that I came along. I might have been a surprise because that's not necessarily the logical time when you have a, a child, but they uh, both were amazing. My dad taught me about vision and strategy, and he could see five and ten years out, and he talked to me about how to do it, which is unusual for a doctor because usually they're not good business leaders. And mom was internal medicine and psychiatry, and she taught me the emotional side, and they are two of my idols in life. You've been very open about growing up dyslexic. How much of a struggle was that for you? Well, uh, it was a big struggle because this was at a time dyslexia was not understood. And for those of you who are dyslexic or have family members, you actually read backwards, you invert letters, uh, you can make the same wrong turn driving again and again and again. To answer your question how it makes you feel, my hands are sweating now talking about it. Tremendous weakness. I probably would have never disclosed it except that on our Take Our Children to Work Day about 20 years ago, uh, a young girl came up and tried to ask a question and about 500 of her peers, and she couldn't get it out. She had written it down, and she started to cry and leave, and I came off the stage, and, and uh, I said, now, 
you know, just asked the question again. She said, I'm dyslexic. And I said, I am too. And we sat down on the floor and I walked her through how you get the question out, just like you're talking to somebody. Then I went back up to get on stage and then I remembered I had a lavalier mic, not an air mic, and I'd announced to the world I was dyslexic. And contrary to what I thought, uh, a lot of people sent me a note and said, John, we appreciate the openness. But more important, a lot of people said, I am too, or can you help my child understand this? And so dyslexics don't think seriously, they go A, B, Z. And if you learn how to use that to a strength, you can suddenly picture things in ways that other people do not. So how does this impact you as a CEO? Well, you live with it, but once you understand what your strengths and limitations are, and everybody has this in life, mm -hmm. and you play to your strengths and you deal with your limitations, but you can also decide how far you take that weakness and make it a strength. For me, I like to go A, B, C, and I get operational people around me so I can connect the dots quickly, uh, begin to see a trend in the market, a chance to, instead of selling routers, sell the internet and change the world, I get that. You ended up becoming CEO mm -hmm. of Cisco. Yes. You joined in 1991. By 1995, you were in the top job. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, they promised me I would get the top job in two years, interestingly enough. It took four. Uh, and, and yet they still put you in the telephone still, closet. Well, they, <laughs> the culture. If you don't fit into a very relaxed, fast-moving pace in Silicon Valley, you're going to struggle. And I've always believed we're all equal in life, and my office shouldn't be any nicer than any of the other executives, and that's what we always did. We put our employees around the windows before it was popular, uh, and we created a, a culture that there were no reserved parking, including for the CEO. It's rare that you get to take a company from 400 people to 75,000, from 70 million in sales to 47 billion, and to change the world at the same time in terms of how the internet really made a difference in all of our lives five years into your tenure, the dot-com bubble burst. Did your bubble burst in that moment? When I saw Wang fall from grace and eventually 32,000 people lose their job, and I watched what happened at IBM where it, was, it should have been the leader in the world forever, and yet it fell for almost 20 years, and then, then it's just kind of slightly improved since then. Uh, I knew transition to happen. And I'd been told that leadership was lonely, but it was about as lonely as it gets in 2001. How and, so? people who had been very complimentary, some of them turned. Mm -hmm. And to me, you're consistent in your behavior in life. And if something changes, you don't all of a sudden turn on the person you'd said so many good things to. So there were some tough comments made, but that's part of leadership. If you can't take constructive criticism, you can't lead, especially in today's world. But the major thing is, and this is what we did again and again at Cisco, is I would develop a replicatable approach to how you, you deal with transitions or opportunities. We acquired 180 companies. Our playbook on those were the best in the industry. When you get knocked down, you determine how much was self-inflicted, how much was market. Uh, you think how long it's going to last. It usually lasts longer than you think. Uh, it will probably be deeper than you think. Then you share with everyone what you're going to look like when you recover. Uh, here's what you're going to do to get there. And then here's how they should measure your success. And you share that with your shareholders, your employees, your customers, your partners. So when you were down, did you lay out a strategy about how you would lead the company out of this? Oh, no. Did you just figure it out along the way? No, actually, uh, I our business, if you can imagine, grew at 70% the first week of December in 2000. There was no indication of problems. And by the third week in January, it was minus 30% growth. I mean, 25% of my customers disappeared, didn't stop ordering, disappeared. And when I saw that number, I went out on a plane and toured the world for about two weeks. And I decided this was a 100-year flood. And I used that word. And I said, we're going to 
adjust appropriately and very quickly. And we made all of our changes in 51 days. I painted the picture of what we're going to look like when we came out of it. We tried to do the best to take care of the employees that were laid off. And we were out of that and gaining market share at the time most of my peers didn't even begin to change. And most of them got left behind in that. Many of them disappeared. You went on to run Cisco for 24 years. Yes. Biggest regret. I didn't see 2001 coming. Mm -hmm. I am usually really good at connecting the dots. Uh, and we did see the big recession in 2008 coming. So I learned from it in the middle of 2007. I said, there's something wrong, Emily, in the financial market because I, my numbers were fine. We were above the quarter again. Uh, the next quarter was shaping up very nicely. But all of a sudden, the big banks in the U.S. slowed their ordering. Well, my numbers were fine, but I learned before you don't just trust numbers. So I called the CEOs. All of them said, John, not a big issue. We're just slowing a little bit. And I've seen that pattern. So I said, we've got a problem coming at us. Stock went down, of course. Uh, and uh, by mid-2008, we were in the biggest recession that we've seen. But this time, we were ready. We powered right through it. So you left after 24 years. Mm -hmm. Why not make it an even 25? So uh, most CEOs, as you know, don't survive more than four or five or six years. Yes, and you were, I mean, you must be one of the longest running CEOs ever. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun, <laughs> but uh, it was the rush to know when you have to change. My last 10 years, I knew that I wanted to make this, this is my family, and I wanted to make it a smooth transition. So I'd always say I'll re-up for five years, and then suddenly I said I'm re-upping for two to four, and everybody knew what that meant is that it was time for me to move on to my next chapter and I wanted to get my family in good shape to make it for the next transition. And three years to the day was the date we announced that I was going to move to executive chairman and make for a smooth transition. You're listening to my conversation with former Cisco CEO John Chambers. Up next, we discuss TechLash, the challenges facing Amazon and Facebook specifically, and whether Silicon Valley is too arrogant for its own good. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. There was a time when Cisco was, you know, one of the top tech companies getting all the glory. Was it hard to watch Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple become that? No, not at all. Uh, my dad taught me that uh, you always take pride in your, your peers' success. And it's so important the industry does well. And uh, you That's awfully benevolent. No, it's just practical. Uh, and I, I believe you don't win by yourself, you win as a team. And why should you ever object to somebody else being successful? And uh, also, I'm getting another chance to do the next Cisco with these startups. So I always enjoyed it when my peers were successful. Not my competitors, but my peers. The ground is shifting beneath Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon. What is your take on the controversies about how Facebook was slow to act when it comes to election meddling and fake news, and how management was asleep at the wheel. Well, uh, one of the things for your audience watching this, you've asked me a really tough question, so I'm going to first avoid it and then tweak it a little <laughs> bit because I'm not agreeing that management was asleep at the wheel. You know, I'm a, a big fan of Sheryl Sandberg and leaning in, and I believe in gender diversity and 
I was the first CEO that asked her to come and speak to my whole leadership team of 3,000 people and required everybody to read the book. I remember that. I and remember when she spoke to Cisco. She, uh, uh, I said, Cheryl, you're too tough on the women. For us men, we have to lean in. We're not doing our job. And so you she think she's too tough on women? I think her book is a little bit too tough on women. Uh, but no, she was making a point. She was saying, we have to control our own destiny and lean in. And when you're, you're breaking out of a challenge, you've got to be able to do it by making bold statements. Now, as much as I've benefited from mm -hmm. lean in and the message of lean in, yes. you can't lean in if the door is nailed shut. And don't companies need to lean in more too? Yes, they do. And uh, using Cisco as an example when I was there, and uh, it was, we had 30% of our board female before anybody even started using those numbers. And we didn't do it because it was just the right thing to do. We had really talented female leaders who were amazingly good. And you've got to pay everybody equally. That should be a given for the same job. And it's easy to do in a large company because you just rank people. And people at the same rank should be paid the same level, period. Uh, in a startup, if you just require people to interview one female for every open position, we saw the numbers change dramatically. Now, we know you're friends with Cheryl. And I knew you were going to So come I back. know it's okay. tough for you to answer this question, okay. but what do you think Cheryl and Mark could be doing differently? Well, this, uh, this is where I'm a believer in replicatable playbooks and how you handle a challenge or when disaster strikes or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you, the first thing you do is determine how much of it was external created and how much was internal. You want to determine how long it's going to last, how deep it will be. You then outline your strategy for it and you paint the picture of what your company should look like coming out. So I think it's important that all of the high-tech companies and the leaders do that and they realize that uh, in today's world you've got to be very transparent because it's going to get out anyhow. And then you've got to be realistic that you, you can't stiff-arm government. You've got to say, how do we work toward legitimate goals? And you've got to build trust relationships and a track record of being able to do it. The lessons learned is the minute you find yourself with a major challenge coming in front of you is you realize how serious it's going to be. I think Silicon Valley struggling for tech versus good versus tech for bad. And are we really a force for the good for the majority, not just of America, but around the world. I think we can be, but I think we've, we've lost that focus, and I think it's important we get back to it. Do you think Facebook is a threat to democracy? Is that no, too much No, way too, way too big to a job. And the, the interesting thing is, when a company's doing real well or a leader's doing very well, everybody sings your praises. And it was like me in 2001, the minute I tripped, I mean, people turned on me I never dreamed would. And by the way, we came back. And every time we got knocked down, we came back stronger. That's the most likelihood for Facebook as well. But it does mean they've got to do things differently. Uh, Mark and Cheryl are good people, uh, but they've got to deal with the issues that are in front of them, and they've got to deal decisively. You can't let it come out a step at a time. And then you've got to say, what does it look like at the end? And then you've got to work jointly with government to say, how do we get there? Given how many times you've seen this movie before, mm -hmm. do you think Facebook recovers? Well, the answer is any company that doesn't constantly think they're under threat has a problem. You probably saw the press on Amazon where Jeff Bezos, who, by the way, is a really good leader, and, and I really like him and marry him, but he, he said to his employees that Amazon could be one step away from failure. If we don't have the courage to 
reinvent ourselves, if we don't deal with tough issues that come at us, we will get left behind. 40% of the Fortune 500 won't exist in 10 years. The same is true of the high-tech companies, maybe even more. So if companies don't navigate through their problems, they will get left behind. It's interesting you mentioned Amazon because this is a company that just said they're going to create 50,000 new jobs and you have people in New York protesting in the streets. They don't want Amazon in their city. Why is that? Well, first of all, anybody who doesn't want Amazon in the city with the talent they attract, they should think about a little bit more. But secondly, and I think Jeff's very much aware of this, we've got to create an environment where we create more jobs than we destroy. Mm -hmm. And I would love to have seen them locate one of their two locations in the Midwest because that's where we're losing jobs. And it's an area that if we don't create a startup culture and new jobs, we're going to have the voting patterns you're seeing now because for the first time, and remember, I lived in North Carolina and uh, Georgia and West Virginia and Ohio and Indiana and Illinois. And for the first time, people in that part of the world think their children, they're not going to have as good a lives as their parents and their children will not have as good a lives as them. All they want is a shot. And so this is where I think the high-tech community has to jump in and make a difference. Is Silicon Valley too arrogant for its own good? Yes. You, you've got to be very careful. First, it's inclusiveness. And secondly, people around the country don't want to be told who they should vote for or we'll give you a stipend if your job is displaced. People in West Virginia, Ohio, Georgia, they just want a good job. They want to be proud of that. Secondly, we've got to realize that while what we do is very good, uh, we also are destroying jobs and we have to deal with that. With the internet, we knew that we'd destroy a certain number of jobs, and so at Cisco, we put network academies into every state in the U.S. Uh, we trained seven million students during the time I was there. Most of them got 30% or more raises. Many of them went on to college. We went into uh, Middle East, and then Palestine created a partnership between startups and the Arabs and the Jewish population about how do we work together, and the GDP went from one half of 1%. Uh, being high-tech to 6.5% just in three years. So this is where I'd like to see Silicon Valley come back to what we do best. Let's change the world in a very positive way, and I think we've got to be very careful that our overconfidence has probably erred on to being too, uh, too arrogant. That was my conversation with former Cisco CEO and author of a new book, Connecting the Dots, John Chambers. Coming up, his take on the biggest areas for disruption in technology and where he predicts the next Silicon Valley will be. Hint, it's outside the United States. I'm Emily Chang. You're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. Where do you see the biggest potential for disruption? The answer is it's going to occur in every industry, and it's going to wipe out 40% of the Fortune 500. The big companies won't exist in 10 years. They're going to get Ubered or Amazon or Netflix or whatever words you want to use. And by the way, each of those big companies could get displaced as well. So you're in a period that you disrupt or you get disrupted, you innovate or you grow or you die, and you have to reinvent yourself constantly in this new environment. And while the job of the CEO used to be vision and strategy, develop, recruit, retain and change the leadership team, culture and communications, that job is now three times faster. You're investing globally. Yes. Where do you think the next Silicon Valley is? India, if I had to bet on, on one country. It's also why it's so important to realize how important selective 
immigration is for this country. Uh, we want to be the place where the best and brightest from all over the world want to go with proper security clearance when they come in. And uh, in India, they graduate 600,000 engineers a year. We only do 60,000 here in the U.S. A huge number of the startups are out of IIT schools in India. They're much like the Stanford's, the MIT's, the Polytechnique out of uh, uh, France, but they're on a much larger scale. Are you worried that the tech industries in India or even China could surpass the United States and that our policies might enable that? Absolutely. And I think it uh, is something we have to be very realistic on. Uh, there has to be a level playing field. I think India and the U.S. should be the most strategic partnership in the world. So here we are in a trade war with China. Is that the right strategy? Well, it's not the most general way to solve it, but the issue is real simple. You've got to have the same level of playing field in China for American businesses as China has here. Our government needs to be very careful. We have to tell China, here's what you need to do for us to get back to normal relationships. So the pressure on uh, is unfortunately probably the right thing to do, maybe not as general as I would like to see it. Uh, it does have to get fixed. It cannot continue to do the way it's headed. This brings me to politics. Mm -hmm. You describe yourself as a John McCain Republican. You co-chaired his presidential campaign. You've given money to both parties. Yes. You voted for Hillary Clinton. Yes. What do you think about Trump's policies? Well, if you look, I think he has identified a very key note throughout the mid part of this country in the southeast and that's what we alluded to earlier that people no longer are optimistic that their children will have a better life and for me it's hard to understand uh, but I do grasp that things have to change and this is where uh, it needs to change. I tend to work with both parties very well I get along with Nancy Pelosi very well. I get along with Kevin McCarthy. I get along with Chuck Schumer, and I get along with the top Republican Senate leadership. And this is where I think our countries have a chance to come together and make a difference. And we can do it around startups and job creation. Everyone grasps, regardless of whether you're in New York or Minneapolis or Indianapolis or Charleston, West Virginia or Silicon Valley, it's about startups or where the jobs will be created. And if we can do that uniformly across 50 states, Let's put the person on the moon. Let's dream again. Let's go do it. So you're traveling the world. You're advising French President Macron. You're advising mm -hmm. uh, Prime Minister Modi. Yes. How do they think about how the president treats them? Both countries realize that we need the relationship between each other. And uh, you don't have many conversations with heads of states as six presidents have told me in the U.S. I'm dating myself if you go out and share the conversation afterwards. But I think the practicality is we need India and if you watch the relationship between Prime Minister Modi and uh, President Trump it's very good and I think the relationship on average is good between uh, President Macron and President Trump. So in 2020 mm -hmm. what do you want to see? Are you going to be involved in that? I would like to be. I was not in the last election. It's the first time I've set out an election, and as you said, I, I uh, got asked election night in Portugal, who did I vote for? And I said, you know, obviously I'd already voted by absenteeism, and, and I said I voted for a Democrat for the first time. And as I look forward, uh, I think it's so important that both parties get back to the middle. America doesn't want to be led from the far right or the far left and yet that's what we're doing in gerrymandering the territories, et cetera. I think we need to, as electorate, tell our, our parties, get your act together, let's be led from the center, and let's do it inclusively. Would you like to see a 
serious Republican challenger to President Trump? I think we need whoever is leading, whether it's President Trump for the next four years or a Democrat or an outsider. We need to get the country back to the middle and inclusive. A country divided isn't good for the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world, even though they're frustrated with the times, they still know America has to lead. And I think some of the issues that are being addressed from tax policy uh, to ease of doing business should have been done decades ago. And taking on China saying it's not fair. If, if somebody's not treating you fair and you, you don't stand up to them, is the problem the person who's doing that or is the problem ourselves because we don't? It took us 19 years to redo our tax code and we're just getting regulations addressed. So I think it's important for all of us to realize that both parties have good ideas. President Clinton and President Bush taught me that, and I was very close to both of them, and still periodically ask for advice and help on tough issues. And uh, I think America will come back again. I personally think it has to be around startups as the logical uniting point. You've written a new book, Connecting the Dots, where you are sharing your sort of life lessons from the battlefield. We are in this time where you know, many people are questioning, is the world really getting better or worse? So what is your advice to people who are building companies now? The speed of change is going to be so fast. And this is where I think most government leaders know they can't do it by themselves because they need the industry and technology to help understand. But if the technology and industry doesn't understand the legitimate needs of government, then government will take action which will probably hurt both sides. So I'd like to see business and government working closer together. Am I the optimist in the future? Oh, yeah. Uh, because in the end, America always does the right thing. John Chambers, I think that's a great place to leave it. Former CEO and chair of Cisco and founder of JC2 Ventures, thank you so much. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. If you like us, please leave us a review. They help. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg.